You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Morning. One of those other seniors graduating in December is Caleb. Caleb, you are going to be missed. Thank you for edifying our community. I really appreciate it. We did it. We're here at the end of the semester. I want to tell you, before I get started, I've had a lot of people come up to me and say, wow, Asbury, I have seen your numbers. What in the world are you guys doing there to contain the virus so well and still maintain continuity on your campus? And I always respond, well, we had a great plan. Dr. Baldwin, the prep team, well executed. Our faculty, the high flex plan, our staff, there's been a lot of buy-in, but our students, the secret ingredient is our students. You have bought into this. You've been committed to this. From the bottom of my heart, thank you. We've had a semester because of your commitment to the plan that we have put in place. Thank you. I want to open with a story about Joshua Bell. Joshua Bell is considered one of the best violinists in the world. When he is performed, he earns on average over $1,000 per minute. In 2007, Bell performed an experiment. He went into a subway, a busy subway. He went incognito, put on a hat, put on regular clothes, jeans, and he began to play his violin. During this time, over 1,100 people passed by him. Seven stopped to listen, and in total, he earned $52.17. Seven years later, he performed the same experiment, except this time he announced he was doing a concert in the subway. The place was packed. Thousands upon thousands of people were there. And Bell, recognizing this and addressing the audience, said, this is more like it. <laughs> now, I share this story because context matters. Understanding the larger environment that something fits within helps us to make sense of what we see, hear, and perceive before us. This is the value of a framework. And today, it is my privilege, Asbury, to share our new chapel framework with you that we will be implementing as we move forward. This will serve as the, the scaffolding, the architecture, the context to our chapels as we move forward. And you might call this our chapel philosophy how we choose a message, and how that message maps back to our framework, and of course, how it edifies our larger community. So here you will see our chapel mission. I'm not going to exhaust this right now, but there are two things I wanna say. First and foremost, you will see in Bolden that we want to inspire and challenge. Asbury, we want you to be inspired in chapel. We want speakers to inspire you. We want you to be inspired by the power of the Holy Spirit but I want you to be challenged. And I will tell you that the moments in my life where the needle was moved spiritually, it was because I was challenged. That, that train in your brain, uh, heart thumping, 
sweaty palms kind of challenge. Second, we are utilizing both individual and communal elements of our Wesleyan holiness tradition. So the individual elements, heart holiness and the mind of Christ, and the communal elements, Christian witness and kingdom community. So let me jump right in. I want to describe what this looks like to you. First and foremost, heart holiness. Asbury is a Christian liberal arts university in the Wesleyan holiness tradition. One of the aims of Wesleyan holiness theology is the desire to live a holy life. That is the directionality for a person of faith is toward holiness or toward sanctification, which simply means being purified and set apart. And sometimes in our description of this, we will call this entire sanctification. So what does this mean? Let me first start by telling you what it does not mean, what it is not. Sanctification or entire sanctification is not full consecration. I'm going to use some theological lingo here. Full consecration is a declaration that you are committed to God. It is our faithful response to God's call. This is a very good thing. It's very integral to the Christian life. But it is not the same thing as entire sanctification. Entirely consecrated Christians may still have sinful strongholds in their life that separate and divide them both from God and from neighbor. Sin divides. Second, entire sanctification is not freedom from all temptation or freedom from the possibility of sin. I've used this expression before. The inability to sin is not the same thing as the ability not to sin, if you caught that. The first says you can't. The second says you don't have to. The ability to sin will always be present in our lives, but that does not mean that succumbing to it is inevitable for us. Third, entire sanctification is not imputed righteousness. What does this mean? To impute means to assign. So imputed righteousness is the mistaken idea that God assigns holiness or righteousness to us even when we are neither holy nor righteous. Those who subscribe to imputed righteousness believe we continue in our sorrowful, sinful selves, but God simply views us as clean, purified, holy, and set apart even when we aren't. Have you ever seen this bumper sticker that says, Christians are just like you, but forgiven? Now that might sound like a nice catchy phrase, but it is not consistent with the biblical witness. Jesus died so that you and I could have upright, godly lives in this present age, as Paul says in Titus. Not so that we can look like everyone else. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. So what does it mean to be holy? What does it mean to be sanctified? Let me, let me identify two things here. Being entirely sanctified means that we can experience perfect love, and it means that we need not live in the grip of sin. Perfect love, one Wesleyan scholar puts it this way, the goal of the process of sanctification is perfection in this life. That is the perfect possession of the perfect motive. The perfect possession of the perfect motive, the love of God 
and the love of others. And second, not living in the grip of sin. Put differently, there is no willful sin in our lives. Many of you remember Dr. Chris Bounds. He described holiness as freedom from the guilt, power, and nature of sin to be empowered to love God, love others, and walk in obedience. But if holiness is freedom from sin, what is sin? We've heard it described as missing the mark, lawlessness, a voluntary transgression against the known will of God might be a more uh, Sunday school answer, or the heart curved in upon itself. Now, all of these definitions are true, but I want to bias you towards this fourth understanding. Cambridge theologian Sarah Coakley says, sin detours desire from its Godward direction. In other words, Wesley understood sin as both an act and a nature, the former being a transgression against the known will of God, the latter being a dispositional bent, again, the heart curved in on itself. So holiness is a dispositional change or the establishment of the love of God in the soul without any rival, as Wesley himself would say. Why? Because holiness means being so filled with God, there is no room for sin. Now, by the way, this is not moralism. <laughs> this is not do's and don'ts. This is fullness. There's an essay that was written by G.K. Chesterton many years ago, and it was simply called a piece of chalk. And in it, Chesterton was saying, my favorite colored chalk is white. There are all kinds of different colors of chalk, but my favorite color is white. He used to use white chalk on a brown piece of paper. And he said, a lot of my friends would say the, the color white for chalk is not a color at all. It's actually the absence of color. And Chesterton says, you're wrong. White chalk is the fullness of all the other colors. Now, his purpose in this essay was not to talk about chalk. Actually, he was using that as a metaphor for holiness. Holiness is not the absence of sin. Holiness is the fullness of God in our lives. And fullness means no resistance. My father-in-law, Dr. Hubert Harriman, puts it this way. He says, the kick is out. Like a horse responding to its owner, it responds to the reins without bucking. There is no more kick. There is no more pushing back on God's authority. Dennis Kinlaw, who used to be president here, said, there are no more no's in your heart. That great Methodist evangelist Phoebe Palmer wrote about every fiber of her being as interwoven with God. Fullness. Asbury, this is an optimistic theology. It's an optimistic theology. We believe we can be changed. We don't need to live in defeat. We believe that we can live upright, godly, victorious lives. Wesley talks about the motion of our heart according with God's will. So when you hear messages and cues moving forward that relate to holiness and sanctification and perfect love, whole life transformation, Christian practices that liturgize and habituate us into followers of Christ who are different and set apart, a holistic approach to life, 
formed into being followers of Jesus, it will all relate to this first dimension of our chapel frame, heart holiness. Let me talk about the second, the mind of Christ. In Matthew 16, you remember this familiar exchange where Jesus famously admonishes Peter. Jesus talks about he needs to go and he needs to die. And Peter says, God forbid it. This should never happen to you. And what does Jesus say back to him? Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. This is a good summary of how we want to sharpen our minds as people of faith. Specifically, we want to set our minds on divine things. We want to think like Jesus thinks. We want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We want to have a biblical mindset. And how do we cultivate the mind of Christ? How do we discern theological truth? In our tradition, we talk about the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Scripture, reason, experience, and tradition. Now, something needs to be said about this quadrilateral. That's actually not the best word for it because it makes it sound like each of those elements are equal. That was not Wesley's view. Rather, Scripture was foundational to them all. Here's an example of a tetrahedron. This is from uh, Dr. Cheryl Crow Johnson here in our community, where you see scripture is the foundation of these other three sides. So let me talk about this. Let's talk about experience. Why is this important for us to discern theological truth? Well, we might think of testimonies of what God has done in the lives of his people, specifically our encounters with Jesus Christ, our encounters with the Holy Spirit. We hear of Christians who describe the guiding presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Wesley himself talked about having his heart strangely warmed at Aldersgate. Steve Deneff has talked about impulses that he cannot come up with on his own. We hear about answered prayer, these experiences, these encounters with God. What about reason? This is possessing a well-furnished mind thinking carefully about how we build our minds, how we think about complex things. I think of Philippians 4, 8, where Paul says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, pure, pleasing, commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about those things. Populate your mind with those elements. It's learning to make a good argument. And it's learning to break apart a bad argument. Does the conclusion follow the premises? Dallas Willard says the prospering of God's cause on earth depends upon his people thinking well. We've got to be great thinkers. And God gave us reason. God gave us these faculties so that we could be better people in the world and so that we can discern theological truth. Tradition. There's a modern sensibility that says tradition is like a shackle that we just need to burst out of to free ourselves. Now, not all traditions are good. I'd be the very first to say that. But that's not an accurate way of thinking about it. Tradition is the scaffolding we inherit, and it exists to guard and to guide us. Good tradition. Stanley Haravas uh, wrote a, a wonderful essay called Sin Sick. Here's what he says. Imagine a medical student who might say, I'm not really into anatomy this year. I'm really into people. I'd like to take another course in psychiatry. They would be told, we do not care what you are into. 
take anatomy or ship out. Harvard says that is real moral education, if not formation. Why is medical education so morally superior to ministerial or Christian education? I think the answer is very simple. No one believes that an inadequately trained priest or pastor might damage their salvation, but people do believe that an inadequately trained doctor might hurt them. Tish Harrison Warren is an Anglican priest. She's a wonderful author. She points out that tradition is not an impediment to freedom. Rather, the guidance and the guardrails of tradition secure our freedom. She writes this, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that I cannot speak as an autonomous, unbridled voice. Instead, I have a large, international, historically grounded body that prays for me, that supports me, and that also makes sure I don't accidentally or intentionally lead others astray or invent ideas that will damage the church. That's why A.W. Tozer says, idolatry is simply imagining things about God and pretending that they're true. Tradition also allows us to better navigate the ethical complexities and nuances of the world around us. And it is a complex world. How should people of faith think about consumerism, nationalism, sexuality, individualism, modern idolatries, or more specific ethical questions like women in ministry, suicide, or ethnic diversity? John Wesley was notable among his contemporaries in how he spoke out against the institution of slavery. And this brings us to the bottom, the foundation, Scripture. Bringing Scripture to bear on the realities of the world around us. We talk about having a biblical mindset. But if we want to be a people with the biblical mindset, that means we have to be steeped in the Bible. We have to marinate it, marinate in it regularly. And this relates also to hermeneutics, how we read, how we interpret the Bible. I think one of the most important passages in Scripture is in Luke 10. Remember, Jesus is asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what does he say back? What does Scripture say? How do you read it? What does Scripture say? And what is your interpretation of what Scripture says? It's not simply enough to read Scripture. We have to responsibly interpret Scripture. Richard Hayes talks about the literary elements in Scripture that guide our actions. First, there are rules, right? Direct commandments or prohibitions of specific behaviors. Love your enemies. Honor the Sabbath. These are rules. There are principles in Scripture. <clears throat> General frameworks of moral consideration by which particular decisions about actions are to be governed. Remember when Jesus says, and if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. That's a principle. Paradigms, stories or summary accounts of characters who model exemplary conduct. The parable of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the talents, Paul's speech at the Areopagus. He's offering a paradigm by which to think about something. And finally, there are symbols, a world that creates the perceptual categories through which we interpret reality. We think of something like the full armor of God. And by the way, this very much relates to the idea of openness. In other words, as we move from rules all the way down to symbols, we see more openness in the text. What do I mean by that? A train schedule is a closed text. 
It shares very limited information with you. When does the train arrive? When does it leave? A Walter de la Mer poem or an Emily Dickinson poem, uh, read The Listeners by de la Mer. It's an open text. 10 people could read that poem and give you 10 different interpretations. Now that doesn't mean that every interpretation is right, but it means that a new kind of responsibility needs to govern how we understand that scripture. And moreover, exercising the mind of Christ means superimposing a biblical, spiritual, theological truth onto the grid of the world around us. Asbury, if the world is talking about it, we need to talk about it biblically, scripturally, spiritually, theologically. When we don't talk about certain things, we relegate those conversations to the wider world. We give them away. Sex, politics, diversity, creation, money, finances, human purpose. You and I know that culture has its own liturgical schedule. And that is why we have to think about the world around us biblically. So, when you hear messages and cues that relate to having a well-furnished mind, I love that expression, Christian thinking about current issues, a Christian lens, a Christian worldview, Wesleyan holiness theology, scripture-centered teaching, and a responsible biblical hermeneutic to interpret scripture and apply it to our daily lives and to our context, it will all relate to the second dimension of our chapel frame, the mind of Christ. Those are the individual elements of our chapel frame, let me get into the communal ones. We've talked about having heart holiness. We've talked about the mind of Christ. But what does it mean for us to act faithfully in the world around us? Like Martin Luther, Wesley believed that sola fide, faith alone, is sufficient for justification. But Wesley believed if your faith is alone, then it isn't faith. Indeed, for Wesley and for any person, salvation was not simply a way to heaven, but rather a way on earth. In other words, eternity is not then, it's actually now, and heaven is not there, but it's actually here. It is the manner by which we behave and act in the here and now. Now, this relates to evangelization, how we share and how we bear witness to Christ. I used to work with a guy in banking and he made an interesting statement. You have to understand the banking atmosphere. In banking, uh, the, the structure lends itself to a lot of internal promotion. They would rather promote for within, from within and there are some very good reasons to do that. So people were constantly applying for jobs to be promoted. And this gentleman I worked with used to tell his employees, if there's a job and you want to apply for it, as a promotion, great, I'll interview you. But recognize that every day you're here, you're interviewing. Every day is an interview. I think there's a Christian parallel here. Every day is a day where you and I evangelize. Every day we're bearing witness to what we believe, what we affirm is ultimate, who our king is, and where our citizenship is. This is not something we force ourselves to do, it flows naturally from our day-to-day -day behavior. It is born out of love. In Luke 14, Wesley's commentary, The Great Banquet, he says, compel them with all the violence of love. 
Who do you love violently? It's a convicting expression. And it's not just evangelization, Asbury. It's how you and I treat our neighbor. So much of Scripture talks of justice as righteousness, right relation between us and God, right relationship between us and our neighbor. And for Wesley, this relates to acts of service or acts of mercy. Now, here's the thing. Acts of mercy, visiting the sick, visiting prisoners, service to refugees, food, clothing, shelter for the homeless, and the like. It's not simply to the benefit of the recipients, it's to our benefit as well. Wesley believed that acts of mercy was a means of God's grace for us to experience that. For several years, I was involved in a prison ministry up in Lexington at Blackburn Prison. We'd go in, we would fellowship with the the male prisoners there uh, for several hours on a Sunday evening. Someone asked me once, do you think the prisoners get much out of that? I don't know was my response. Probably not, but I do. I do. It's a means of God's grace. We see holy hands throughout church history, and especially from the churches cut from the cloth of the Wesleyan tradition. Free Methodists were abolitionists. Promoted by Anglicans, Sunday school was first and foremost a space to teach children how to read. The first college chartered to grant degrees to women was a Wesleyan college, or was Wesleyan college in Macon, Georgia. And the Wesleyan church has actually been ordaining women in the church for over 140 years. And of course, we could talk about the Salvation Army. The Salvation Army is an institution that is fundamentally Wesleyan in its orientation. But here's the thing, it's not simply an institution, it's a church. And it's a church that serves over 30 million people every single year. 82 cents of every dollar that is earned by the Salvation Army goes directly to services, to serve people. I'm so proud, by the way, that we're one of the only colleges or universities in all of North America that has a Salvation Army student center on our campus. Think of what the world would be like if you wave some kind of magic wand and all of these institutions disappeared. Think of what that would be like. It would be darkness. And here's the thing. Here's the important point. You see, heart holiness and the mind of Christ spills out into our acts. It is generative. Paul says in Ephesians 5, 8, the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. Light bears fruit. Light crowds out the darkness. And contrast that with Jude, where the author of Jude is talking about people who call themselves Christians, but in reality, they are waterless clouds. They are autumn trees that bear no fruit. Think of that imagery in an agrarian society. You don't do anything. And what does Jesus say? You are the light of the world. Heart holiness and the mind of Christ will naturally overflow and spill over into other dimensions of our lives. So when you hear messages here in Hughes that relate to acts of mercy as a means of God's grace, evangelization, missions, service, acts of charity to others, orphans, widows, aliens in the name of Christ, compassionate engagement as holy action, integration of heart and hands through reflection, neighborliness, 
how we relate to those who are around us, it will all relate to this third dimension of our chapel frame, hands and service, hands of service and Christian witness. Last but not least, fourth, kingdom community. The author Harold Kushner, he writes about a leading anthropologist that spent years studying chimpanzees out in the wild, and they made a really interesting statement. They summarized it by saying, one chimpanzee is no chimpanzee. What do they mean by this? An isolated chimp cut off from the community has no sense of self, of meaning, of belonging, or of purpose. And I think something parallel can actually be said here of the Christian. One Christian is no Christian. I had a friend several years ago saying, I don't need the church. I'm circumventing all of that stuff, and I've got my own thing with Jesus. I don't think that's an accurate way of thinking about that. In fact, I think that's wrong. We don't bypass the Christian community in our quest to be Christian. Our faith is never sharpened in spite of the church, but through it. And our faith was never meant to be uh, received and apprehended and lived out in individual isolation. It was always meant to be internalized and enacted within a larger community. We see this in Genesis 1. Let us make humankind in our image. Dr. Brian Hall says we were created out of community for community. This is the narrative arc of the Christian story. It begins with communion and it ends with communion. God's kingdom is a community. It's a banquet. I think of something like Sartre's comment in the play, No Exit. Hell is other people. And I think to myself, if that is really your attitude, that hell is other people, that individuality is your heaven, if you will, it's not a matter of whether or not you'll get into the banquet. It's a matter of whether you'd want to be there. Moreover, not only is God's kingdom a community, it's a global community. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. To paraphrase Wesley, all are invited to the great banquet, but we don't get to choose our dinner guests. Will Williman was a bishop for the Methodist Church. He used to be a chaplain at Duke University. He tells a story of their associate pastor during the Iraq War praying for the U.S. soldiers in Iraq, but then praying for the people of Iraq, all the people and the children and the community. After the service, a woman came up to Bishop Williman, accosted him. She was furious. She said, how dare you? How dare you? Don't you realize you are literally praying for our enemies? Love your enemies? That sounds familiar. Williman said, in worship, you are participating in a very different world, a different citizenship, if you will. That world is characterized by a biblical view and the belief that it is God's world and he is at work within it, a world where Jesus Christ died to give all the opportunity for eternal life. Jesus didn't just die for you and I. He literally died for his enemies. I've said before that if, if you take the Gospels and you were to put those inside of this 
literary sieve, if you will, and you were to shake that around, one of the themes you would be left with is this, things are not as they seem. And if Jesus Christ raised, was raised from the dead, all of the maps have been redrawn. Things are not as they seem. Our citizenship is in heaven. And as Paul says, it is from there, it is from heaven that we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Asbury, when you hear messages in the future here in Hughes that relate to the importance of a church community, how we live together, being the local and the global church, recognizing and celebrating the diversity of God's kingdom, Imago Dei theology, a global church mindset that God is at work throughout history and throughout the world, and a theology of mercy and justice. It will all relate to the fourth dimension of our chapel frame, kingdom community. So let me conclude here. I've said a lot. Uh, this, this was not intended to be exhaustive, uh, but I certainly wanted to give you an understanding of our chapel philosophy moving forward. Again, context matters. Messages in hues should map back to our frame in some meaningful way. At Asbury, we want chapel to be a place of growth. I want you to be inspired, and I want you to be challenged. I want you to be challenged. We want chapel to be a place of belonging, coming together as a community to worship as one body, to present ourselves, plural, as a living sacrifice, singular, holy and pleasing unto God, as Paul says in Romans 12. And we want to be better followers of Jesus Christ. We want to be better versions of ourselves through our chapel experience often describe Asbury as a student's story of belonging and becoming. And chapel is one of those spaces on our campus to inculcate those very values. You belong, you are grafted in, you are deeply woven into the fabric of what it means to be one communal body in one accord, furiously pursuing Jesus Christ to look more like him. And your story of becoming not just becoming more like Jesus, but becoming the best version of you. Fulfilling the teleology of what God desires and has designed for your life. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you that you have met us on this campus again and again. Father, we don't want to play Christian. We don't want to be loyal to the brand. We don't want to be waterless clouds. We don't want to be autumn trees that bear no fruit. Lord, we want fullness. Fullness so the world will be better for it. Fullness, Lord, so that you will be glorified. And fullness so that we will be the best version of ourselves. Father, make us different. Holy Spirit, make us different fundamentally different, fundamentally altered the trajectory of our lives so that we live in to that Ephesians 2.10 description that we are made for you. We are made for your work. We are what you have made us created in Christ Jesus for good works, which you prepared beforehand to be our way of life. Thank you for these students, Lord. Thank you for what I know they're going to do. 
Thank you, Lord, that they will be the heart and the mind, and that will express itself in their hands, their acts of service, how they add value to the world, how they serve others, and how they glorify you. Thank you for these students. Thank you, Lord, that the world will be different because of them. And Lord, I humbly ask these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Asbury, you are dismissed. Have a blessed Friday. Thank you.